I do want to introduce our preacher for the morning, Kevin Van Hooser. He's a professor at TEDS just north of us. He is the research, research professor of systematic theology. Uh, he is married. He has two children who live uh, in Notre Dame and on the West Coast. Uh, Kevin, uh, most famously to this congregation probably, has uh, been the doctoral advisor for several of our students, Derek Rishmaui, Roy McDaniel, Austin Freeman, to name a few. Uh, he teaches out there. Uh, he's written many books in many ways for those of us who are pastors and all of us who are followers, disciples of Jesus. He is a translator. He's like a travel guide through our secular world with our Christian faith. So I'm very excited to invite him uh, to our pulpit this morning, Kevin uh, Van Hooser. But before we do so, let me read the passage that he will be preaching from, which is in Mark's Gospel. All who are able, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I was looking for my, no, I was looking for my reading glass. I'm going to take a chance here. This is God's word. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you in this season of your 20th anniversary. Um, you're still relatively young. My wife and I celebrated our 41st anniversary last summer. And these are indeed occasions to celebrate because they mark years, years of covenant faithfulness. I'm told the traditional gift for a 20th anniversary is China. I hope you'll forgive me. I brought you paper instead. I am a friend of the family, though. I've visited Grace several times over the years. I was here for the particularization service uh, led by Phil Riken a few years back. And over the years, as Marshall indicated, I've supervised some students. And as he rightly said, what my real claim to fame is that I'm Derek Rishmawi's supervisor. <laughs> That's how I get introduced in many places, not just Grace. He's around everywhere, it seems. Now, speaking of 20th anniversaries, last month we celebrated a not-so-happy anniversary, the 20th of September 11th, a terrible day when an act of terror became a, a kind of little apocalypse, ending the world as we knew it. It was an unexpected, traumatic event. To some extent, we're still recovering from it. It was an event that no one was expecting, as I say. And this morning's text is also about such an unexpected event. In fact, it's known as the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13, uh, also as the Little Apocalypse. And it's apocalyptic because it also is about the unexpected end of the world. It's about Jesus' return. Uh, Mark 13 begins with Jesus teaching about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple 
and then his return. Uh, but we're not there yet. Uh, we're in the middle of the chapter. And in the middle of the chapter, uh, Jesus is reminding his disciples, we don't know when he's coming back, so that's why we have to be ready. We have to be on the lookout for his return. He says battles and earthquakes are but the beginning of the birth pangs, the labor that takes place to bring about this new creation that he's teaching about. But we're not there yet, so Jesus teaches his disciples to be ready. He encourages them to preach the gospel and bear witness to the coming kingdom in the meantime, even if it means persecution, because the Holy Spirit empowers believers precisely for this task to give faithful witness. So, though this is about end time, this little apocalypse is really for people living now. It's about the present, as we'll see, because it has everything to do with our discipleship now and about the importance of enduring to the end. And it's because we don't know when that end will be that we have to be on our discipleship toes, as it were. And that's the gist of the passage we've read. So, Jesus' words are as important today and as radical today as they were when the first disciples heard them. It's so easy to go through the days and years dreaming with our eyes wide open. It's easy to go through life asleep at the wheel of your own existence. But Jesus issues an existential wake-up call, a demand to become alert and attentive to the real world. And I'm not talking about the world of stock markets or stockpiles of nuclear weapons. I'm talking about reality, what God is doing in creation to bring about a new world. This is the world to which God's Word has come through the prophets. It's the world to which God's Word made flesh has come in Jesus. And it's in Jesus that God is doing this new thing, bringing all things together in a new way in Him. We need to stay awake to that. But staying awake is hard. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a college student home on holidays must be in want of a nap to sleep perchance through the night. Birds do it, bees do it, even beluga whales do it. But American men and women, not so much. We are sleep-deprived, wired-in workaholics, so the polls tell us. Forty percent of us are getting less than six hours of shut-eye per night. I can add to that statistic last night. Back in 1910, though, people slept an average of nine hours a night. Imagine. So perhaps it's no surprise that the quest for a good night's sleep has become a cultural obsession and big business. Uh, just in the year 2015 alone, consumers spent more than $40 billion on sleep-related products. So what is Jesus actually teaching us about sleep? What is he asking disciples to do? Well, the first thing I want to say is that we're all disciples of somebody or something. The real question is, whose words, whose wisdom, whose method are we following? For example, 
Whose ideas about love inform your understanding of what love is? There's so many words about love out there. Some of them are in movies, like Love Story, where we're told love means never having to say you're sorry. Or maybe you're a Beatles fan, and they say all you need is love. Or, younger among you, maybe Justin Bieber, who advises us to love yourself. Some of you may get your ideas about love from more respectable sources, like Albert Einstein, who once said, you can't blame gravity for falling in love. Or, this is more esoteric, the novelist James Joyce, who says, love loves to love love. But to be a follower of Jesus, and not simply an admirer, you have to pay attention to what he says. And he did have important things to say about love. In fact, it's part of his greatest commandment to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbors as ourselves. Take that, Justin Bieber. So if you want to know whose disciple you are, look at the way you think about and express love. Because a disciple means following in a, the way that certain words go, the words of your teacher. And the way the words go, that's important because that was the name for the first Christians. They were followers of the way. They were the way. Acts 9.2 speaks about those who belong to the way. So being a Christian, first and foremost, is not about being a good person. Jesus' way isn't primarily about morality. No, being a disciple of Jesus is about living out his life in us. And that's hypermoral. It goes beyond morality. We live out his life in us through faith by the power of the Spirit. And walking the Christian way means making what mattered most to Jesus matter most to you. What mattered most to Jesus? We know this. He said, it's seeking the kingdom of God. So seeking the kingdom of God is not simply one more item on the disciples' to-do list. Rather, it's the one thing that puts everything else in its proper place. To seek the kingdom of God is to let Christ be the king over everything we do. Well, Jesus tells a story that illustrates uh, his discipleship. But just before we got there, I need to find my page four. And there it is. So, what I want to ask then is that in light of our insomniac times, how should disciples understand and follow Jesus' command? How can we do what he says in verse 33? Be on guard, stay awake. So the immediate context is his teaching about the coming day of the Lord. In verse 32, he says, no one knows the day or the hour. And it's precisely because we don't know when Jesus will return that we have to stay alert. Uh, Marshall mentioned I was a professor of systematic theology, so I would let you down if I didn't introduce one technical term. Maybe you already know it. It's eschatology the study of last things. You've probably heard people discussing end times, 
the world as we know it and its end. Um, I don't think the point is to figure out when Jesus is coming back. Lots of people have been there, done that, and typically when they try, it ends with an, an embarrassed excuse and, a, and, and often a recalculation. Uh, I think Jesus' teaching about the end time is not to help us to find out when, but it's, help, it's uh, intended to make us ready whenever. That's the point of it. And by the way, Christians aren't the only ones speculating about end times. I saw a roadside billboard up in Lake County where I live just last summer advertising a survivalist expo. And I I actually wrote down the caption which said this, If you have thought about what it means to prepare for the worst, the Chicagoland Survival Expo is for you. Long-term food storage tactical gear, and so much more will be available for purchase. I don't think this is what Jesus had in mind, (laughs) stockpiling food, weapons, underground bunkers. Uh, Jesus' disciples are not doomsday preppers. We're preparing for the day of the Lord, which is something to celebrate. It's important to remember, though, that eschatology, this orientation towards last things, eschatology begins now. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Eschatology begins now because we are living between the times, the time of Jesus' first and second coming. And Jesus' charge to stay alert is therefore a call to Let's call it eschatological discipleship, the call to follow Jesus rightly between the times, Uh, not yet at the end time, but getting ready for it. We're poised between his resurrection and his return. So, having said that, Jesus then illustrates his teaching by telling a story, a story that illustrates eschatological discipleship. It's a very short story. We heard it read, verses 34 to 36. It's a a kind of parable that's unique to Mark's gospel, a cautionary tale about the need for wakefulness when the master is away. Just before we look at the story, though, let me address a question you may be asking yourselves, and that is, how literally are we to take this? Because on a surface reading, the cost of discipleship appears to be never having a full night's sleep. Well, I'm a theologian who takes Jesus' teaching seriously always, everywhere, and at all times. But taking it seriously doesn't necessarily mean taking it literalistically. And elsewhere in the New Testament, sleep is a figure of speech for spiritual dullness or inattention. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, Paul describes disciples as children of the light, children of the day. And then he says, so then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. That's interesting because Jesus, or sorry, Paul wasn't in the audience when Jesus first told his story, but he's certainly aware of the importance of staying awake. Now, the fact is, everybody needs a good night's sleep in order to be alert during the day. Uh, Don't take my word for it. 
read the New York Times bestseller, Why We Sleep. It's by the director of the Center for Human Sleep Science at UC Berkeley. I read that book and I learned that the biological drive to sleep is found throughout the animal kingdom in every species. In fact, humanity is the only species that deliberately deprives itself of sleep. Maybe it's because the rest of the animal kingdom hasn't discovered coffee. In any case, the World Health, the World Health Organization has declared in our time a sleep loss epidemic. Scientists have stayed awake over time trying to figure out why we sleep. We can't gather food, make money, or find a mate while we're asleep. It used to be thought that sleep was a kind of biological appendix, like our appendix. It's there, but we don't have any idea about what it's for. But new research has shown that sleep enhances every organ of the body, especially the brain, and that it may be the single most effective thing we can do to rest our brain and body. So Jesus is not anti-sleep. He's not anti-literal sleep. In God's wisdom, sleep is part of the good created order. It's not an evil, not a consequence of the fall. So Jesus is speaking metaphorically about staying alert to the coming kingdom of God. He compares himself in this little story to a man going on a journey. And indeed, he will be. He's going to be leaving his disciples before too long. They eventually see him depart when he ascends into heaven. But before he leaves them, he promises to send the Holy Spirit to empower their witness to the ends of the earth. And before he leaves them, he promises to come back. But in this story, the master goes away, and the point of the story is that the disciples should be busy in the meantime, before his return, with their assigned tasks. And that's the context where Jesus says, therefore, stay awake for you do not know when the master of the house will come. Now, the house in the story is most probably the church. That's a very common image for the church in the New Testament. For example, Paul in Ephesians 2 speaks of the household of God when he's speaking of the church. But by the end of the passage, as we'll see, Jesus is talking and directing his story not only to church leaders, but to all disciples. Now, the point of this little story that he tells is about the importance of staying vigilant, alert, and attentive. Uh, when I went to teach at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, there was a lot I had to learn, new terms that I wasn't familiar with. One of those new terms was invigilate. I was told that was part of my job description. I had to invigilate Great, I ran straight to the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, it turns out it's a technical term for supervising students who are taking final exams. I think we use the term proctoring. But I like this term. I had to remain vigilant in the room to make sure that the students weren't guilty of intellectual property theft or plagiarism, cheating as we know it. And I like this term. Because I think Jesus is teaching disciples to invigilate their own Christian lives. 
That is to keep watch carefully over the way they live. And what's striking is that in, Mar in verse 35, Mark makes a special point of mentioning all four watches of the Roman night. He mentions in the evening, keep alert in the evening, that's 6 to 9 p.m., at midnight, 9 to 12 p.m., when the rooster crows, 12 to 3 a.m., and in the morning, 3 to 6 a.m. Now, you may think that's evidence for him meaning this literally, but I think the point is he really means figuratively all through the night. That is, don't ever let your guard down. Keep watch at all times. Now, being or staying woke has become a controversial notion in our times. Being woke in our context means being aware uh, or even active in matters pertaining to social justice. Again, that Oxford English Dictionary, that book I follow, <laughs> I'm a disciple, uh, it includes the term, so I guess it's official. I'm not about to get into politics here, but I want to say this. Long before the term woke became fashionable in American circles, Jesus was calling his disciples, I think, to stay woke, alert and attentive to the politics of the kingdom of God. That's what was coming in their midst. Be alert to it. Now, Mark has his own term for being woke in this radical sense. It's a Greek term, and he uses it three times in verses 34, 35, 37. The translations say, stay awake, but the Greek term is gregoreo. It's a verb, very common verb for being awake. But Jesus gives it a new sense here, and I think a new note of urgency. Did you know that our name Gregory is derived from this Greek term gregoreo? You can hear the similarity, Gregory, gregoreo. Uh, that's why so many saints are named Gregory in church history, and even a couple of popes. The name Gregory reminds us that a disciple of Jesus must be a person who stays awake, spiritually woke. In any case, Jesus' short story is a lesson in the importance of remaining alert between the first and second comings. Now, that's our whole lifetime. We're, our whole lives will be between Jesus' resurrection and return. And that means this short story is a banner over our whole lifetimes. That's because every day for us is a time where discipleship will be tested and tried. Every day for all of us is filled with opportunities either to prove ourselves faithful followers of Jesus or, God forbid, unfaithful followers. Verse 36 spells out the cost of what we could call drowsy discipleship, when you fail to keep watch and stay awake. Verse 36, lest he, the master of the house, come suddenly and find you asleep. That would be embarrassing, but it's more serious than that. You've heard the expression, to fall asleep on the job? Uh, some workplaces consider falling asleep on the job a form of gross misconduct, a warrant that would uh, terminate your employment. 
Uh, now, I know in Japan there's a tradition of napping at the office, but in most places, the consequences of falling asleep on the job can be disastrous. Uh, the example I want to give you comes from 2008. Maybe you remember this event when two pilots on their way from Honolulu to Hilu, Hawaii, fell asleep. And uh, they flew past their destination, 15 minutes past their destination, and then somehow they woke up before they ran out of fuel. Sometimes falling asleep at the controls, especially the controls of your own life, can be potentially disastrous. So that would be terrible. But the ultimate cost of drowsy discipleship is not getting G to hear Jesus say to you at the end of your life, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, interestingly, in Mark's gospel, we haven't read this passage, but in the next chapter, chapter 14, Jesus' disciples have an opportunity to practice what Jesus preached because he asks his three closest disciples to accompany him to Gethsemane to keep watch while he prayed. This is Jesus' hour is fast approaching, you see, the hour of his own temptation. Will he follow through with his mission and go to the cross or not? I don't know if you remember this episode. Again, this is Mark 14. Jesus goes off to pray. Again, remember what's at stake for him. He bears his soul to God. And then he comes back and discovers the disciples sleeping. He goes off to pray a second time, returns. And Mark says, he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. Jesus prays a third time returns, guess what? The disciples are sleeping again. Peter, James, and John, uh, a sorry support group. <laughs> Jesus, we're there for you, snore. Well, there's deep irony here, and Mark knows exactly what he's doing because in between Jesus' teaching about the importance of staying awake in Mark 13 and the disciples' failure to stay awake in Mark 14, Mark inserts the account of Jesus telling Peter that he would betray him three times before the rooster crows twice. You see, Mark is showing us that Peter's own hour, the hour of his testing, is going to come when he least expects it. And later in the chapter, after Jesus has been arrested, the servant girl accuses Peter of being a disciple, and Peter denies it and says, I do not know this man of whom you speak. This was Peter's big scene. This was his moment of truth. This was the moment he could show himself to be a true disciple, and Peter slept through it. Incredibly enough, Earlier that same night, Jesus, upon finding Peter and the other disciples asleep, had singled out Peter and said, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Mark 14, 38. That's incredible. I mean, Peter hears the story uh, he falls asleep, Jesus singles him out, 
and yet he's still not alert to the moment of his testing. So how can we resist this temptation to fall asleep? How can we resist Peter's mistake? It's not simply through willpower, but as Jesus says, it's by watching and praying. Or maybe better, we keep watch by praying. Praying is the way to make sure your attention remains focused on God and the things of God. This wasn't a very edifying story about the disciples, but I want to mention that I think it's more evidence for the authenticity of the gospel accounts. Because you'd expect the people who wrote the gospels, the leaders of the early church, to portray themselves in a favorable light. But instead, in strikingly honest fashion, the Gospels here depict the disciples in very unflattering terms. They fall asleep on the watch. They fail to follow Jesus' words. It's very realistic, and I think the Bible is very realistic about the human condition. And that includes our condition. So how about us? Are we more awake than Jesus' first disciples? Let's go back to the story about the absent householder. Here's how Jesus concludes it in verse 37. What I say to you, the first disciples, I say to everyone, stay awake. Everyone. That, that means us. So we do need to take some lessons away from Jesus' story. Let me suggest a couple. Let me suggest, first of all, that true discipleship is all about waking up and staying awake, waking up and staying awake to the reality of what God is doing in Christ through the Spirit to renew creation. There's nothing more real than that, but are we awake to it and can we stay awake to it? Because second... The sad truth is many of us are only half awake. We may think we're engaged with the real world, but we're living in what C.S. Lewis calls the Shadowlands. C.S. Lewis wrote a letter in 1963, the same year he died, to a woman who was having trouble facing reality. She was in the hospital, really on her deathbed, and she was deathly afraid. So here's what Lewis says to her, and I think it's a good word for all of us. He says, think of yourself as a seed, patiently waiting in the earth, waiting to come up a flower in the gardener's good time, waiting to come up into the real world, the real waking. I suppose that our whole present life, looked back on from there, heaven, We'll seem only a drowsy half-waking. We are here in the land of dreams, but the cock crow is coming. I hope you got that. Lewis is saying that most of us are only half-awake to the kingdom of God dawning in our midst, which is the true reality. We may be plugged into other media, electronic media, social media, Maybe we're following celebrity Twitter or Instagram accounts more than the gospel accounts of Jesus. If so, we may be suffering from TADD, 
theological attention deficit disorder. Not good for discipleship. This is the failure to pay attention to God and to all things in relation to God. It is well documented that attention spans have shrunk in our time, probably thanks to our being wired in to our devices. Uh, Marshall McLuhan, the media studies guru, says that new technologies have a numbing or narcotic effect that lulls attention. Lulls, that means puts it to sleep, as in lullaby. <laughs> and Nicholas Carr, author of The Shallows, says the internet is by, is by design a machine geared for dividing attention. Quote, the, ne the net seizes our attention only to scatter it. It grabs our attention only to scatter it. What do you call a pedestrian who shuffles slowly along without being aware of his surroundings because he's talking on his iPhone? The technical term for this, not in systematic theology, but it's still a technical term, is smomby, smartphone zombie. And again, look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary. It's there. This... Uh, Smartphone overuse has reached epidemic proportions. We're, we're walking around like smartphone zombies. Uh, I hesitate to mention zombies from the pulpit, but it's important that Christians understand what's going on in our culture and, and what it means. I also think that the idea of zombies is in Scripture, even if the term isn't. I don't know the Greek for zombie, but the term isn't there. But listen to this letter to the church at Sardis from Revelation 3. And note, it's a letter to the church. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Wow. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That's what zombies are, the living dead. Now, if a horror is a violation of God's good created order, then zombies, the living dead, are horrific. The first zombie film from 1968, George Romero's The Night of the Living Dead, was about a group of people, normal people, trapped in a rural farmhouse and attacked by zombies. It was filmed in Butler County, Pennsylvania, but... It could have been set in any Midwestern town because the zombies have invaded the suburbs, if you haven't noticed. Zombies, then, are the opposite of what Jesus wants his disciples to be. They are the examples of what I'm calling sleepwalking discipleship. It's not exactly clear what they're following, by the way. Some media critics think zombies are symbols of mindless consumerism. Mindless being the operative term. Again, they belong to the living dead, so they're sort of alive, but they lack mindfulness. They have no attention span. One person has said, to be a zombie is to be oblivious to being oblivious. In any case, the cost of sleepwalking discipleship is that you inadvertently join the ranks of the living dead. You become like the church at Sardis. 
You think you are alive, but you are dead. One film historian says that Romero's film about the zombies is horrifying precisely because the monsters aren't creatures from outer space. The monsters are us. That's what's so horrifying. Human beings were not created in God's image to be like that. So, choose you this day who you want to be, a member of the living dead or a wide-awake disciple, a zombie or a Gregory. We know what we have to be if we're following Jesus' words. The text concludes in verse 37 with a two-word command, stay awake. And that's urgent. Stay awake. It's urgent. And Jesus, again, is talking about being spiritually alert, alive to our discipleship, its privileges, and our responsibilities. In light of Jesus' command, we could say that waking up and staying awake, and again, awake to the reality of what God is doing in and through Christ, staying awake to that is the essence of discipleship. If you actually read your New Testament, you'll be struck, I think, now that I've mentioned the term, to see how often wakefulness and watching are important when Jesus is teaching his disciples. Given its importance, then, how much greater is the failure of his three closest disciples who couldn't do the one thing Jesus asked them? Stay awake. So, friends, let me again suggest that the Christian life is all about waking to and staying awake to the reality that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Only faith in God's Word opens our eyes so that we can see the world for what it truly is, a place that is being gathered up by the triune God into Christ. Being a disciple means being Christianly woke, attentive and attuned, not to this worldly ideologies, but attuned to the truths of the gospel, we in Christ and Christ in us. Have we fallen asleep to the reality of Christ? Have we let in cleverly, culturally devised myths? Have we failed to invigilate the doorway of our souls? We need to keep watch over this doorway to our souls um, because we make choices every day and every hour about what to let in and what to expose ourselves to and what to stay attentive to. And these decisions affect our discipleship. They tell us whose words we are truly following. Again, if we want to follow Jesus, we have to follow his words. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And there it is. Uh, friends of Jesus uh, do what he says. Friends of Jesus are his true disciples. And his true friends stay awake. That's our duty then as disciples, to stay awake, as awake as possible for as long as possible. But this sounds hard. How do we do that? I know all about the difficulties of staying awake. When I was teaching at Wheaton, I had to commute an hour each way. And at the end of a day, I would come back and I'd get drowsy uh, just about Deerfield. <laughs> and uh, even a five-hour energy drink 
did not do the trick. Physically, then, staying awake begins with getting a good night's sleep. But spiritually, wakefulness begins with praying continually. Watch and pray. To pray is simply to speak to God. And when we're speaking to God, we're attentive to His presence and His, and His activity. To pray is to be attuned to reality. It puts us in our place. It reminds us why we're here and what we're to do for the day. We're to be seeking the kingdom of God. True prayer reminds us that our life is not about getting my will done in heaven, but about how I can help get God's will in heaven done here on earth. I'm suggesting then that prayer is the best antidote that I know of for theological attention deficit disorder. But you may say, I doze off when I pray. <laughs> what can I do? And Paul has a second suggestion in Colossians 4.2. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. To be awake to God is to be thankful because God is a good God and the gospel is good news. John Magagab, the longtime friend and assistant to Henry Nouwen, puts it like this, gratitude gathers us into that double helix of grace descending and praise ascending that forms the basic design of life with God. I like the idea of a double he helix. Prayer, in other words, is the church's DNA, and it's, it, uh, it, it reminds us that Grace is coming down and praise is going up. But we were speaking of the apocalypse. The apocalypse. Uh, Albert Camus, the French existentialist writer, was not a Christian. But like everybody else, he was a disciple. He was following some philosophy of life. And he also had an eschatology, a vision of last things. In one of his novels, The Fall, a character says... You don't have to wait for the last judgment. It takes place every day. And I think the Gospel of Mark agrees. No one knows the hour of Jesus' return, so we have to be ready for it at all times. We don't want to be caught napping. Let's learn from Peter's bad example then. Every moment has the potential to become that hour that moment of decision, that moment of testing that tries our discipleship to see if we're actually following Jesus as our Lord or whether we're sleepwalking our way through life. Jesus was ready for his decision in the hour that he needed, but Peter did not recognize his hour, and he failed his test of discipleship, at least at that moment. What about us? So again, I'm leaving you with the words for disciples, being awake to the new reality in Christ and being alert for the hour that may test your own discipleship. Because every day, there are lots of occasions, whether we're eating or drinking, talking with our friends, working, playing, maybe doing something more significant. There are many opportunities in every day, in every day to show that we are awake to the reality of Christ. And there are tests every day of our discipleship. C.S. Lewis makes this point really well, I think, when he says, <clears throat> Happy are those 
whom the Lord finds laboring in their vocation. Whether we're merely going out to feed the pigs or laying good plans to deliver humanity a hundred years hence from some great evil, perhaps the curtain will fall. Those pigs will never, in fact, be fed. The great campaign against slavery or governmental tyranny will never, in fact, proceed to victory. No matter. You were at your post when the inspection came. We can't change the world by ourselves, but we can be at our posts and ready for the moment we are called to play when we're called to play it. Friends, the church exists to make disciples, people who are wide awake to the new reality in Christ that's dawning, people who are watching and waiting for every opportunity to bear witness to the Lord, people who are ready for their hour of testing because it will come. It may be upon you at the moment. I don't know. But remember to watch and pray. Can we get a witness? Can, they, can, can Jesus get a Gregory? Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. Amen.